Thank you for that lovely reception. It's, <laughs> what else can I say? That was a great introduction. I'll, as a matter of fact, of all the introductions I've ever had, that's the most recent. <laughs> I am Baptist, uh, and uh, I grew up in this Baptist church where the only thing they talked about was getting ready to die. Have you ever been in those churches where every sermon, are you ready to die? I remember at 12 years old, uh, the minister yelling and screaming at the top of his lungs and pointing at me, 12-year-old kid, are you ready to die? I'm 12 years old. <laughs> and of course, the good news of the gospel is that uh, if your faith is not in your own good works, but in what Jesus did for you, if, if you're trusting in him for your salvation and not in yourself. You know, a lot of us have this idea that if I do a lot of good stuff, it'll outweigh the bad stuff and that'll get me into heaven. It won't work. The only thing that works is saying, Jesus, there's a lot of bad stuff in me, but you love me anyway. And I'm glad you did what you did. Uh, my, my, my son, my son was very, very good working with young people in the inner city of Philadelphia, and he had this retreat in the Pocono Mountains about an hour and a half north of Philadelphia, and he had about 250 kids up there. These are the toughest, roughest inner city kids you can possibly imagine. I mean, these are the toughest of the tough, and they're up there. And my son is a Pied Piper. He has no problem getting young people to follow him. He's not very good on organizational details. 250 kids, wild kids, high school kids, tearing the place apart. There's only two counselors up there. What's even worse is my son's running late. He's coming up the northeast extension of the turnpike, and he's got a, a, a van full of kids, a, a luggage on the roof in the back, and, and they're calling him on the cell phone saying, you're running late, get up here, it's a mess. Boom. One of the tires on the van blows out. He pulls the van over to the side of the road, jacks the thing up. He's trying to, you know, he had to unload all the luggage, get everybody out of the van. He's trying to change the tires, got the thing jacked up, trying to change the tire. The van slipped off the jack and smashed to the ground. And my son let loose with a religious statement that had no theological content. <laughs> As they're coming back to Philadelphia, this one kid says, hey man, this was a great weekend. I made my decision to give my life to Jesus and become a Christian this weekend. Bart was thrilled. He wanted to know, how did this happen? How did this wonderful thing, was it the speaker? Was it the prayer gathering, the Bible? No, 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 no. It's on the way up here, when the van fell off the jack and smashed to the ground and you said all that stuff you shouldn't have said, I figured then, if he can be a Christian, anybody can be a Christian. <laughs> And that's the good news. I don't know how messed up you are. I don't know how much sin is in your life, but whatever it is, welcome. <laughs> this is a place for messed up people. As I look over this group, I see a lot of, well, I won't finish. <laughs> Getting ready to die. Now, you have to understand, I, I felt at home here today for a very interesting reason, because this is a predominantly white church, predominantly. Although you had that jazzy guy leading the music, that was a, but it's a predominantly, and white people are generally hard to talk to, you know. I, I mean, uh, you can say anything in most white churches, like, I just returned from the moon. 
I belong to an African-American church. I've been there since I was a kid. And I'm old now, but that's my church. And uh, it's a really fun place to be. I remember at the age of 19 going to my first African-American funeral. I'd only been to Italian funerals where they scream and cry and go hysterical. So you can imagine my confusion when I went to a funeral and this was like happy time. This was joyful time. As a matter of fact, I hadn't been anything so happy in a long time. The minister, he, he talked about life after death. Trust in Jesus for your salvation, not in your own righteousness. Believe in what he accomplished for you on the cross. And he went on and on. And he made the afterlife sound so wonderful that halfway through his talk, I wished I was dead. <laughs> then he came down and he spoke words of comfort to the family. And the last thing he did is he came over to the open casket. And for the last, the last 20 minutes, he preached to the corpse. You say, what's that like? Ask any Baptist pastor, he'll tell you what it's like. <laughs> He just, he just yelled at the corpse. He yelled, Clarence! Clarence! And he said it with such authority, I would not have been surprised had Clarence answered. <laughs> he said, Clarence, there were a lot of things we should have said to you. We didn't get a chance to say him. You got away too fast, Clarence. We got away too fast. We're going to thank you now. And he went down this litany of beautiful wonderful things that Clarence had done for people, thanking him over and over again. And when he finished, he said, well, that's it, Clarence. There's nothing more to say. And when there's nothing more to say, there's only one thing to say. Now, pastor, don't try it. You're white. It won't work. I want you to know that. <laughs> he said, there's only one thing to say. He grabbed the lid of the casket and he yelled at the corpse. Good night, Clarence. Good night, Clarence. And he slammed the thing shut. Shockwaves went over the congregation. When he lifted his head, he had this big smile on his face. He said, good night, Clarence. Good night, Clarence. Cause I know. I, I got it down, haven't I got it down? Yeah. <laughs> I know God is gonna give you a good morning. And the choir stood and started singing on that great getting up morning. We shall rise, we shall rise. We're up on our feet, we're in the aisles. We're hugging each other. We're dancing. And I knew I was in the right church. I knew. I knew I was in the... I mean, a, a church that can take death and turn it into a celebration. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, death. Where is your sting? Oh, grave. Where is thy victory? And you know... You have this eternal life, not because you did a good thing in your life, but because Jesus did a good thing for you on the cross. On the cross. Uh, I was in an airport uh, in Richmond, Virginia, and there was a, a guy working the crowd with the four spiritual laws. He was doing a good job, and he got over to this elderly African-American gentleman dressed in a three-piece suit, white hair, elderly, just, and he was sound asleep. And this kid came over and hit him on the knee, and the guy, whoa, whoa, whoa. What is it? He said, excuse me, sir, are you saved? Poor old guy said, yeah, I think so. I, I guess, yeah, I guess I'm saved. That's not good enough, he said. Can you tell me exactly when you were saved? Poor old guy said, well, not exactly. 
It was almost 2,000 years ago. <laughs> now, isn't that solid gospel? Your salvation is not dependent on what you've accomplished. It's what Jesus did for you on the cross. Here's what happened. He reached across time and space and connects with any person that will surrender to him. He's able to do that, you know. He's able to reach across time and space and connect with you. You say, wait a minute, the cross was 2,000 years ago. You don't understand. Jesus is not just the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect man who never sinned. Jesus is God incarnate. He's God incarnate. I mean, the God that created the universe took on a human body and lived among us. And that was Jesus. But he was simultaneously, as the Chalcedonian Creed says, very man of very man and very God of very God, both simultaneously. So when he was on the cross, listen to this, he could experience time both as a human being, that's a linear progression like you and I do, or he could experience time in God categories. You say, what's that mean, God categories? Well, to understand that, you have to take a brief excursion into Einstein's theory of relativity. Seriously. Einstein said time is relative to motion. The faster you travel, the more time is compressed. If I put you in a rocket, set you into outer space, traveling at 160,000 miles a second, and said, come back in 10 years, when you returned, you would be 10 years older. All the rest of us would be 20 years older. Traveling at that speed relative to us, according to Einstein's theory, our 20 years would be compressed into 10 years of your time. If we got you traveling at, a, at 170,000 miles a second, our 20 years would be compressed into one day of your time. If we got you traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, which we cannot do, because as you approach the speed of light, your body, your physical body would expand outward and gain weight towards infinity. I tell you that because don't let anybody ever say you're fat. Just say, I'm traveling too fast. Just <laughs> tell them that. But if I got you traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, all of time would be compressed into one eternal now. All of time would be compressed into one instantaneous now. And the reason why I told you that, that's God time. With God, there is no past, there is no future. He says, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. The very name of God connotates timelessness. His name is what? I am that I am. Please note, I never was, I never will be, because with me, being God, everything happens in present tense. That's why Jesus could say, before Abraham was what? Why would he say I am about something that happened thousands of years earlier? Because he's God. And because he's God, the past, the present, the future, everything happens now with him in his divinity. And as he hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was and he is simultaneous with you right here, right now. You say, wait a minute, there's 2,000 years separating me sitting here and Jesus on the cross back there. At the speed of light, in God time, those two moments are compressed into exactly the same moment, which means that right now God is looking at you. And if you'll let him, he'll cleanse you. Now, I already made the point that because of what happened in Calvary, your sins are forgiven and forgotten and buried in the deepest sea and remembered no more. I've already made that point. But he wants to do more than just forgive you of your sins. First John, the first chapter, the ninth verse, 
If you confess your sins, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive you of your sins and he will what? Cleanse you. Now people, you come here and you say, I believe in Jesus, my sins are forgiven, but don't you need a bit of cleansing? Don't you need for Christ to reach out from the cross and connect with you and like a magnet, draw out of you all the dirt and dark and ugly things that are in you. You say, I, I don't have any problems like that. You do. <laughs> I do. I mean, if you knew all there was to know about me, you wouldn't let me speak. If I knew all there was to know about you, I wouldn't talk to you. <laughs> We're in this thing together, amen? We're in this together. But here, here, listen. If you connect with Jesus on the cross, he reaches across time and space. And like a sponge, he absorbs the sin, the darkness, the ugliness of your life, and he makes it his own. The Bible says, he who never sinned on the cross. Listen, he not only takes the punishment for your sins. We always preach that. He took the punishment, the penalty. He did more than that. He who never sinned on the cross, his scripture became sin. He absorbs it into his own body. He becomes every murderer, every rapist, every liar, every child molester, every thief, every blasphemer. He becomes everything that's filthy and ugly about human beings and draws it all into his own body. That's why he cried in Gethsemane. He wasn't afraid of dying. He knew that if he died, he would rise again. He had predicted his own resurrection time and time again. Had he not, he knew he wasn't going to stay dead. But this is what he was afraid of. This is why he said, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Because he who never sinned, the pure and holy Jesus that you were singing about, when he hung on the cross, absorbs, absorbs the dirt and the darkness. What you need to do is you not only need to believe in Jesus with your head, you need to surrender and say, Christ, reach out from Calvary, touch me, absorb Absorb out of me the dirt, the darkness, the ugliness of my life, the old hand, oh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Will you let Jesus cleanse you today? Can you name those things in you? It says, if you confess your sins, name those things that God wants to remove from you. You can name them. Will you let him reach out from Calvary and touch you and absorb into his own personhood the dirt, the darkness, the ugliness of it all? He'll do it. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit can explode inside of you. Now, this is a Pentecostal church. I smelled it the minute I walked in the place. And we talk a lot about the Holy Spirit. And one of the brilliant things about the Pentecostal movement is they have brought to the remembrance of the church that seems to have forgotten that there were certain gifts of the Spirit. The gift of preaching, the gift of teaching, the gift of healing. These are all ministries that are not for another dispensation. They're for here and now, and they're exercised by the church. So, let me say with all the Pentecostal brothers and sisters, you're on target. That's exactly it. The Bible promises that there are diversities of gifts. And I don't know what your gift is. I don't know what my gift, well, I do know what my gift is. My wife will tell you, and it's not much. But we all have gifts. But the Bible not only talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it also, in the sixth chapter of Galatians, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. 
the fifth chapter of Galatians, fruits of the Spirit. There are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, endurance. Nobody ever said, Jesus never said, by their gifts they shall be known. What did he say? By their... Ah, so the question is, not do you have a gift of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. The real question is, do you have the fruits of the Spirit? And at the top of that list is love. The second one is joy. There's, there's a good fruit of the Spirit. I felt that one here, a, kind of a happy place. You don't have to go to, to McDonald's to get a happy meal. You can come to this church and get a happy meal. Yeah, yeah. So joy, uh, and there's not much joy in the world. That's one of the evidences that people are filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a joyfulness about them. I, I got in an elevator in Chicago, and there was this kid next to me, and he was just dull as could be. He was wearing his pants low. Do they do that in Texas? <laughs> the tough guys up north, we wear our pants so low that you feel that the trousers are going to fall off. Do you ever get that feeling? I mean, you can see the underwear in the back. In this case, you can not only see the underwear, you could see the crack. I had a strong temptation to take out my pencil. And I said, I said, hi. He said, hi. Having a good day? Yeah. Are you a happy tramper? Yeah. Jeez. We got down to the ground floor, this dead, dull kid. The elevator doors did not open. I panicked. I'm starting to bang on the door yelling, get these doors open, get these doors. All of a sudden, I heard a voice behind me say, sir, the door is open. I turned, it was one of those elevators that had doors on both sides, and I'm, I'm banging, I'm banging on the wrong door. This kid did not laugh. I couldn't believe it. He didn't laugh. He started off. I grabbed him. I said, kid, laugh. This is funny. <laughs> and I know what you're going to say. What has this got to do with being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, when you're filled with the Spirit, there is a joy and a spontaneity about you. There is an ecstasy about your personhood. That's why, even if there wasn't any, and it wasn't any hell and there's both... You really need to surrender to Jesus just to get cleansed and be filled with that spirit that will lift you up and set you on higher ground. That's what Jesus will do for you. But I want to talk just a little bit about what Jesus will do to you and through you right now. Because you are not only called upon to experience the blessings of the love of God, you are called upon to express the love of God towards other people. Eric Fromm, a prominent sociologist out of the University of Frankfurt, hardly a member of the God Squad. He was a neo-Freudian, neo-Marxist ideologist, but he was brilliant in dissecting and observing as good sociologists should do. And he noticed that among Christian people, in his book, The Art of Loving, he actually mentions Christian people, that in certain groups there is I love the sociological terminology. A, a collective effervescence. Isn't that a nice way of saying it? That's what I felt when I walked in here today. Collective effervescence. There's a joy there. And there's a love there. And he started talking about what he sociologically observed among the people who had this collective effervescence. Three things. 
he cites in his book. The first one is the ability to concentrate intensely. Concentrate intensely. I, I don't mean just as a student. I mean concentrate on each other. I just finished lecturing at the University of Pennsylvania where I taught for 10 years, and I, I got to the corner of 34th and Spruce Street at the end of the evening lecture, and I heard the duck lady coming, a homeless woman. She wandered the streets of the university. We called her the duck lady because she never stopped making a quacking sound. Quack, 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 quack. Jeez. I asked around. Nobody had ever heard her stop quacking. Not for a moment. And I heard her coming, this strange, Homeless woman coming up alongside of me. Quack, 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 quack. Got right beside me. And I turned. And her eyes met. And with all the energy that the Holy Spirit can create within the believer, with all the energy, there is an energy there. I'm not afraid of the gospel of Christ. It's more than a set of doctrines, isn't it? There's a power. With all that energy, I looked into her eyes. Jesus said the eyes are the entrance of the body. If the person closes off his eyes, then that person is in darkness. And the only question is, how deep is the darkness? I looked into her eyes. Our eyes met. It was an eye-thou encounter, as Martin Buber, the Hasidic philosopher, would have said. It was an, we had become spiritually one. We had become connected. I not only looked at her, there's a big difference between looking at a person and looking into a person. The superficiality of our culture is we think that love is what you see when you look at a person. The truth is, whatever you see when you look at a person is going to disappear. Let me break it to you. I mean, you don't look pretty when you're 79, I got to tell you that. If you're looking at a person, you don't see much. But if you're imbued with the Spirit of God, you're able to not only look at, but look into. Paul writes this. We look at each other how? As though through a glass darkly. We really don't know the person we're looking at. We see that person through a glass darkly. But then what? Face to face. And we had this face to face encounter. And with all the spiritual energy within me, I reached down into the depths of her being. I touched the innermost recesses of her humanity, and we connected, and she stopped her quacking. Unbelievable. She just stopped. She looked around as though coming out of a trance, and she had. She said, it's lovely, looking at the trees, looking at the sky. It, it's, really, it's really quite lovely. And before I could respond, the traffic light changed. And the horde of students around us pushed by and bumped both of us. And I watched her head snap. And she fell back into her schizophrenic state and started quacking again. And she wandered down the street and disappeared in the crowd. And I stood there and I thought, if only I could have held on to her for a moment longer. If only I could have stayed connected with her for just a little longer. Maybe the deliverance would not have been temporary. Maybe it would be ongoing. You say, hey, Campolo, you're a social scientist by trade. I mean, uh, don't you believe in psychiatry and psychotherapy? Of course I do. But hear me, people. After the psychotherapist and the psychologist have done all that they can, have pulled all the tricks out of their hat, and the person still is messed up, I got great news. 
There is still a healing power out there. There is still, there is still a balm of Gilead. There is still a balm of Gilead that lifts people up and plants their feet on higher ground. And I often ask people like you, when was the last time you entered into a depth relationship with your marriage partner? I mean, you're married, you're here with your wife. When was the last time you entered into a depth relationship? I don't mean look at the person, but when was the last time you sat there and said nothing, but simply let the energy of God go through her eyes or his eyes and down to the depths of that person's being and connect? When was the last time you felt that I-thou encounter? That sacred encounter. So many of us just look at each other through a glass darkly. And we do not enter into the depths of others. I love the verse in Scripture that says, and Jesus knew what was in people. He knew what was in them. He was able to reach into their lives and down into the depths of their being. Uh, and he, he, was, he was able to connect. The, the second thing is that when you're filled with the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit are evident, I talked about joy, but love is even more important. Love is more important. I mean, the gifts of the Spirit, I said, were already important. Did I make that point? But love is more important, not because I said so. Paul says so. You speak with tongues? Paul says, you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Do you have love? Because if you don't have love, you're a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. You say, I, don't, I got the gift of prophecy. Terrific. It is a legitimate gift of the Spirit. Do you have love? Because if you don't have love, it profiteth nothing. I mean, I don't want to go through the whole thing. You know what the Bible says. The more important, as Paul says, than all the gifts of the Spirit, he ends that 12th chapter of, of Matthew by saying, I want to show you something more excellent, and it's love. It's love. It's the Holy Spirit cleansing you, filling you with himself. And is the Holy Spirit making you into an instrument of his love, as St. Francis of Assisi said. I'd like to tell you about a teacher named Gene Thompson. It was the first day of school. She said to the students what teachers always say the first day of school, boys and girls, I love you all the same. Sometimes teachers lie. <laughs> she didn't like Teddy Stollard, and you wouldn't like him either. He was a singularly unattractive child. He sat slouched in his seat. He never paid attention. When she spoke to him, he answered in monosyllables, yeah, no. never bathed often enough to get rid of an ugly odor. His clothes were unkempt, his, his hair never combed, he just sat there, slumped in his seat. When she marked Teddy's papers, she always got a perverse delight out of putting X's next to the wrong answers. Vroom, 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 vroom. And when she put the F at the type, top of the paper, she always did it with a flare. Vroom, vroom, vroom. She should have known better. Teachers have records. She had records, first grade. Teddy is a good boy. He shows promise in work and attitude. Poor home situation. Second grade. Teddy is a good student, but he is too serious for a second grader. His mother is terminally ill. His father shows no interest. Third grade. 
Teddy is becoming withdrawn and detached from the other children. His mother died this year. He's estranged. He needs help. She should have known better. Christmas came. The children brought their presents. They piled them on the teacher's desk. They were all in brightly colored paper, except for Teddy's present. His was wrapped in brown paper and held together with scotch tape. To tell the truth, she was surprised he even brought a present. When she tore open the paper, out fell this rhinestone bracelet with most of the stones missing and a bottle of cheap perfume that was almost empty. The other children began to snicker and giggle. She silenced them. She put some of the perfume on her hand and held it up and said, isn't it lovely? Isn't it lovely? Taking the cue from the teacher, they all agreed. At the end of the day, when all the other children had left, Teddy lingered behind. And he came over and he said softly, Miss Thompson, Miss Thompson, all day today, you, you smell just like my mother used to smell. That's her bracelet you're wearing. It looks very nice on you. I'm really glad you like my presence. And he turned and he left and she got down on her knees and asked God to forgive her. And in that moment, she surrendered to the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And the next day when those children came to class, they didn't come to a class, they came to an outpost of the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is wherever God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and, and they had a new teacher. It was still Gene Thompson, but when you're in Christ and the Spirit is in you, you become a new person. She reached out to children who were having trouble, especially the little Teddy. By the end of the school year, he had caught up with a lot of children. The Stollard family moved away. She didn't hear from Teddy for a long time, and then one day this note came. Dear Miss Thompson, I'm graduating from high school. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, I'm second in my class. The university has not been easy, but I really enjoyed it. I'm graduating on Saturday, and I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years later, another note. Dear Miss Thompson, as of today, I am Theodore J. Stollard, MD. How about that? I'm going to be married the 27th of July, to be exact. I want you to come, and I want you to sit where my mother would have sat. You're the only family I have now. Dad died last year. Love, Teddy Stollard. And she went. She sat where the mother would have sat. The love of God had turned her into a concerned person, a concerned person. Last night, I was at a, at a gathering that was trying to raise money for a ministry that works over in this place. They call it Unity Park. And uh, a lot of homeless people go there. And they're trying to keep this thing open all week long, trying to reach out to people who are in desperate need. There were people there, and we needed for them to sacrificially give. 
I don't like to play on, on guilt. I want people to be cheerful givers and be, give because they're concerned. Concerned. Concerned enough to sacrificially reach out to people who are in desperate straits. Now, Jesus comes across the Sea of Galilee, lands at a place called Gadarenes, and this crazy guy comes running up to him, screaming and yelling. You've met people like this on the streets of Dallas, have you not? Screaming and yelling. And this is what Jesus does. Looks at the guy straight in the face, connects with him in depth, and then asks a simple question. Hey, fella, what's your name? People have been calling him names for years. This is the first time probably that anybody asked him what his name was. And Jesus is concerned. The Bible never says he performed a miracle on this occasion. It does say this. And when the disciples returned, they saw legion, fully clothed, in his right mind, talking to Jesus. The greatest preacher of all time is not preaching. The greatest counselor is not counseling. The greatest preacher, teacher, philosopher is not doing any of those things. He's listening with intense concern. The ministry I'm talking about, and Pastor, you're going to tell a little more about it when I'm finished, I hope, because I asked Keith, and he said you would. Is trying to show the concern of the church for people who are the throwaway people of our society, the left-behind people in the society, to be concerned. And then this last thing, commitment. To be in love, according to Fromm, is to be concentrated, is to be concerned, and to be committed. Committed. I have a friend, Robertson McWilkin, he was the president of a Bible college in South Carolina, Columbia Bible College. Took that from a two-bit school, making it into one of the great missionary training schools in the world today. At the pinnacle of his career, at the peak of his career, he resigned. His wife had come down with Alzheimer's disease. He resigned in order to take care of her full time. We tried to convince him not to resign from his leadership at this school. Robertson, we said, she, she doesn't know who you are. I mean, put her in a place where her needs will be met, where she'll be cared for with kindness, but you don't give up a role of leadership in Christendom in order to take care of somebody who doesn't even know who you are. And I thought this would do it. Robertson, you're reneging on your calling from God. Woo. His responses were classic. You're right. She doesn't know who I am. But I know who she is. And she's the same woman I married. And secondly, there's something that takes precedence over a calling from God. It's called a promise. And I promised that I would be there for her 
till death do us part. It was the end of the discussion. In a day and in an age where marriages fall apart because there's little commitment. Oh, you don't understand, doctor. She just doesn't make me happy. Jeez. I, my father was from Sicily. He didn't really care whether I was happy. <laughs> he wanted to know whether I was going to be a good person and whether I would keep my promises and my commitments. That's what he wanted to know. But in an age where I'm just not happy, I, I'm getting commitment, commitment, commitment. My, my wife sometimes jokes when people say, how long have you been married? She'll say, well, 55 years, you know, and 52 of them were pretty good. <laughs> she doesn't mean we had three bad years. We mean that almost every month there's at least one day she wishes she wasn't married. <laughs> I've been obnoxious and what am I doing with this guy? But you're committed and you stay together and you work it out and you make it work. It's called commitment. And love has a high level of commitment. When we talk about homeless people, I got to tell you this. I was talking to a friend of mine, a Baptist preacher who had a midweek prayer meeting. And one day, a man stood up and said, I was in King's Cross in Sydney, Australia. It's like the Times Square of Sydney. He said, I was waiting for the traffic light to change and somebody tugged on my coat and I turned around and here was this raggedy man. He looked at me and he said, Mister, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? That's all he said. And he turned and he walked away. The man said it so troubled me that within the month I, I had to go to church and I gave my life to Christ. I couldn't go on with that question unanswered. My pastor friend said about two years later, another man stood up and said, I was in Sydney, Australia. I was at King's Cross, and I was ready for the, waiting for the traffic light to change. Somebody tugged on my jacket. I turned, and this man said, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? It so troubled me. I went back to my hotel room immediately, got down on my knees, and gave my life back to Jesus. My friend said, I was at a meeting for the World Council of Churches and they were meeting in Sydney, Australia, and I, needless to say, I went down to King's Cross. wanted to see whether or not this old homeless guy was there, and I felt somebody tug on my jacket. I turned around, I raised my hand and said, don't say a word. Don't say a word. I know what you're going to say. You're going to ask me, if I was to die tonight, where would I spend eternity? This old guy was just stunned. He said, how did you know that? And my friend told him, about the two men who gave testimonies at his church. This old guy was so moved that he started to cry. And as the tears rolled down his cheeks, he said, I've been living on the streets a long time, but I wandered into that mission down the street there, you know that mission for people like me? And I heard about Jesus, and I gave my life to Christ. And I, I don't, I'm not educated or anything, but the only thing I could think to do was to go around and ask the question. And I've been doing it for 
for almost nine years. This is the first time I had any idea it was doing any good. Commitment. Stay at it. Stay at it. Stay at it. That afternoon, uh, about four years later, I was in Sydney, Australia. I was being interviewed on the Australian broadcasting system nationwide, and I told the story. Before the interview finished, the switchboard at the radio station had lit up. People were calling in from all over the country saying, that man impacted my life. He changed me. He had an influence on my decision to become a Christian. It went on and on and on like that. I know when all this happened, it was 1999. The next year would be the year 2000, and they were going to celebrate the, you know, the great centennial. People had sent in money to the broadcasting station, and they bought a huge sign and if you can remember, when the year 2000 started, the first city they showed was Sydney, Australia. And over the huge, and it is huge, huge harbor bridge, there was one word, you may remember it, eternity. Eternity. In the midst of this passing time, remember, eternity. The year 2000 is important, not as important as eternity. There are homeless people, far too many of them for the richest country on the face of the earth. I don't know where you people are politically and I don't care, but when you are willing to spend $250,000 a minute in Afghanistan, $250,000 a minute for 11 years, and you forget the homeless in your own backyard, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. We are followers of Jesus, are we not? And Jesus loves those people who fall by the wayside, those people who fall between the cracks. You say, but there's not much hope for them. Of course there is. Closing story. There was a movie made in 1989 called The Seventh Seal. It was made by Berkman, one of those arty films out of Sweden. Its plot was built around a medieval knight that plays a game of chess with the Prince of Darkness. And as the story unfolds, you come back to this chess game over and over again, and they're making moves on each other. And at the end, the prince of darkness makes a move and says, checkmate, the game is over. And the curtain comes down. The young Bobby Fischer, who had just won the world championship in chess, had gone to see the movie with a friend of his, and they were sitting there. And as the curtain came down, Bobby Fischer almost hysterically turned to his friend and said, I can't believe he's given up. I can't believe it. He thinks it's over. The king, you see the king. The king could have made one more move. He could have turned everything around. Doesn't he see that the king has one more move? People of God, you look at somebody and say, there's no hope over there. Nothing can be done. I got great news. 
the king has one more move. You, you, have a, you have a son or a daughter who strayed off the path and you say, I don't think we'll ever get him back again. I've got great news. The king has one more move. You've got that, that family member, that friend who's addicted to who knows what, and his life or her life is spiraling downwards, and you say, there's nothing that can be done. We've got the good news. The king of kings has what? I didn't hear it. The king of kings has what? One more move.